The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, we've got an episode all about beards, when they were in fashion, when it was better to have a smooth face, and how the perceived health benefits of beards have changed over time. Dr. Alan Withy is an expert on the history of facial hair, and he's joined by our content director, David Musgrove, on today's podcast of Poganotomy to chart the ups and downs of beards from 1650 to 1900. Today, I am uh, delighted to be joined by Dr. Alan Withy, who is Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Exeter and author of an excellent new book, Concerning Beards, Facial Hair, Health and Practice in England, 1650 to 1900. Uh, Alan, welcome. Thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, and thanks for having me. Pleasure. Right, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick off with a little quote from uh, the book, which I quite liked. Um, uh, the place of facial hair as a masculine emblem has long been debated, as has its relationship to male and female physiology amidst long-term changes in concepts of the body for centuries. At some points, such as the 18th century, facial hair has fallen dramatically from favour. At others, beards have represented the very summit of manliness. Um, so that's quite a, that's quite a nice uh, turn of phrase, I think. Um, so so let's jump in. So your book's uh, charting a period 1650 to 1900. Can you? Uh, um, to kick us off, give us a, a little sense of the ups and downs of facial hair during that period. What, what's, what are the main trends? So the book starts off in the mid-17th century when men are still generally bearded and, and actually wearing a style quite similar to the one I've got now, which is the Van Dyke, um, sort of slightly pointy beard and moustaches, um, redolent, of course, of, of Charles I and the, the Stuart monarchy. As we go through the 17th century, towards the end, it's thinned out a bit to become moustaches. Uh, obviously, this is this is the point which Charles II, once he's once the restoration has happened. But by 1700, it's gone, generally across Europe. And the new standard is the clean-shaven face. And as a very broad narrative, so it remains until mid-19th century, when, of course, the Victorian beard movement comes in and massive, effulgent, luxuriant facial hair is what a lot of men are aiming for. I won't say all men. Um, that was one of the things I looked at in the book, is actually is, is the issue of how far down the social scale this stuff goes. But in general, we started a period of beardedness, go into a long period of beardlessness, and then come back to the beard, and the book finishes as, as again, that sort of comes in, uh, goes, starts going back out again. So it's like this little sine wave of facial hair, if you like. Um, and before the, the, the mid seventeenth century, just uh, I know it's beyond the scope of your book, but was was it uh, mostly bearded before then? What how, medieval beards and beardlessness? What was the what was the situation? Well, again, I think the pattern sort of repeats. You get periods like the early medieval when the the, the tonsured hair and the shaved face is is, is um, popular. 
But then, of course, with the Tudors comes, the, the again, another sort of massive facial hairstyles, the spade beard, which you see in Holbein portraits. And again, um, that, that style worn by Henry VIII, the very big, um, thick facial hair, which is seen, again, as a symbol of male wisdom, but also sexual power, virility. Um, it's very much that, that um, sense of the beard is an outward representation of male inner heat. Okay, well, we'll get on to that, uh, that heat question in just a second. Uh, another point that, which again, is slightly beyond the scope of your book, but it, I think useful to just check in with, is uh, does, does beard fashion um, in any way follow hair fashion? Does, does, is hair changing in length as, uh, as beards go up and down? Absolutely. I mean, the two don't, from what I can see, the two don't necessarily track together. But yeah, fa- um, hairstyles um, will shorten and lengthen according to time. If we think of the Renaissance, there's a period, you know, think of Renaissance portraits, that quite long, straight hair. Um, and then uh, at other points, it's cropped short. Um, and of course, in the 18th century, it's cropped short to wear a wig, which brings another dimension in because you've got replacing natural hair with completely unnatural hair. So yeah, it does. The facial hair is no different to head hair in that in that sense. Okay, right. Let's get back to that point you just uh, you just referenced about uh, about heat, and I'm gonna gonna drop in another quote here um, because you've got some really good quotes. You have got a, a brilliant turn of phrase in this book. Um, in 1650, facial hair was conceived of in humoral terms. Uh, in physiological terms, facial hair in early modern England was regarded as one of the body's excrements, essentially an exhaust gas left over from the production of sperm deep within the body, which gradually made its way upwards and outwards, solidifying on the surface of the face. Wow. <laughs> Come on, tell, tell us about that. That's, a, that's, a, that's quite, a, quite an extraordinary concept for us to understand. Yeah, and, and sort of learning that your beard was once referred to as an excrement puts a different slant on the whole thing, doesn't it? Um, but yes, it's to do with it's to do with inner heat. So that that one of the stories, long stories that the books tell, or the book tells, is about how it initially facial hair is regarded as something that emanates deep within a man's body. It's very much the result of an inner process, uh, and because it's this, let's call it the exhaust gas of of the production of sperm, the waste heat that rises through the body, it's very much linked to a man's um, sexuality. His his reproductive ability so literally if you the the stronger and bigger a man's beard is it's a visible sign of his manliness is is his innate um vigorousness if you like um so yeah it's this totem if you like of masculinity um but even when beards begin to be shaved off at the end of the 17th century the same thing remains you still have to be able to grow a beard even if you choose to shave it off. It's such a deeply held view. But by mid-18th century, that's begun to be abandoned and it loses that that um, connection to spermatic heat over time. As we move into this beardless period, um, uh, we've still got that idea that it's important to be able to grow a beard. So how did you, how, how was that sort of assessed? Did, how did people um, demonstrate they were able to grow a beard? Was that, was that... Well, that's a really good question. And you have to at least be able to demonstrate. So so one of the things I looked at in the book is how often men shaved. Um, we, we sort of have this idea that, you know, they might shave every day because we, we think of the clean-shaven Georgian. But actually, what I found is usually every two to three days. So for a lot of the time, um, a guy would have some stubble. 
and that stubble, I think, is really the visible sign of of um, you know being able to grow one. Um, and whatever period you go to, seventeenth century, eighteenth or nineteenth, if you can't grow a beard, then there are lingering associations with effeminacy and suspicions of your womanishness, as they call it. Um, you, you, if you would, there are even specific terms, in fact, um, such as smock faced for somebody who can't grow a beard and the, the the term beardless boy people whose beards fall out are called spanapogones or spanapogonies there's all sorts of this specific terminology so yeah it's, it's so um important in a man's life to be able to grow it that it, it attracts its own terminology so if you're if you're in the mid 17th century this period mm. when when beards were still uh, on vogue and you were unable to grow a beard um that was an impediment to you socially then presumably um was there anything you could do about it well there's not too much evidence of false beards being used but they they were about um because it's actually even in in uh embedded in culture and even things like shakespeare's plays you know the, the figure of the beardless boy so yeah you really are at a disadvantage if you can't grow one then you only have the option of trying one of the many dubious remedies that are in remedy collections to make hair grow and hope that has the desired effect, or you have to disguise it in some way. Um, maybe contrive your own facial hair, uh, your your own fa- uh, false facial hair. And the further forward we come in time, there are actually places selling false beards for people who can't grow them. So I was trying to think as I was reading the book um, about um, people in the 17th century who who obviously didn't have beards, and you you know you talked about uh, the kings with the with the famous uh, pointy beards that you just uh, described. Um, Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, was he? He wasn't much of a, a a beard kind of guy, was he? Stuarts regard the beard as a fatuous bauble, um, particularly Protestants and Puritans, of which obviously Cromwell is a, an art exponent. So they they dislike anything that smacks of artifice or decoration. So shaving off the beard for a Puritan is a sign of their renunciation of um, fashion, if you like, and just this stepping back from the, the general trend. And one of the reasons, of course, they're called round heads is because of the close-cropped hair, but also the lack of beard. Ah, okay, right. So it drops into puritanism, right? So, um, so is that is that part of the reason why we start to move into the beardless eighteenth uh, century? Then, what's what what's the reason why people step away from facial hair? Well, it starts to become associated actually with a more rustic or uh, rough version of masculinity, because of course, if we think of the eighteenth century, we're talking of politeness, sociability. Um, it's the age of the polite gentleman and a new model of the body. So a model that is refined, neat, elegant, and smooth. Um, There's a lot of um, aesthetic smoothness about in the 18th century. If we think of even things like statues, um, that that smooth-faced aesthetic. So it's all about cutting anything out that disturbs the harmony of the body. You you don't want to be seen out with a stubbly face. That does it. Um, There's the the cult of youth, which privileges the youthful face. And of course, removing facial hair makes it look more uh, youthful. But there are all sorts of other things, even just the the metaphor, actually, of removing the beard to leave an open countenance, which in turn reflects an open mind, which is the standard of the enlightened gentleman. So there are lots and lots of different things in the mix. There's no single reason we can say, right, it went out because of 
um, you know, A, B or C. And, and you mentioned uh, to start with about uh, sort of the social aspect of this. Um, so did, was was facial hair different across the social strata? I mean, you've mentioned gentlemen here um, uh, shaving um, shaving their beards. Uh, was it was that to signify a difference between the, the hoi polloi? Well, that's a really interesting question. And that's actually one of the problems I wanted to look at, because a lot of times when we're talking about fashion in the 18th century, we're probably talking about middling sorts or elites because they're the easiest ones to get to. And of course, when we think of Georgian portraits, you will struggle to find a portrait of a Georgian bearded man unless it's in depiction of a very old man or somebody in a biblical scene. So um, there is a danger in assuming that this fashion is all across society. So I was racking my brains thinking, how do we actually get to the face of the lower class man? And the the way I found was actually um, slightly unorthodox was to look at wanted advertisements in newspapers, um, of which there are an increasing number in the 18th century. So given that newspapers expand, um, people whose servants have run away or people who've been um, you know, had some crime committed towards them, runaway servants, runaway apprentices, and so on. People want them back, and they place advertisements in newspapers giving a physical description of them. And because they want them back, that physical description is likely to be accurate because they want, obviously, that person to be found. Um, and what I found was there were a, not a large percentage, but there was certainly a regular occurrence of um, 18th century men wearing beards or whiskers. Um, I can't really put a number on it, but I would say, you know, the maybe 10 or 20%. It wouldn't have been absolutely uncommon to have seen a man walking around with some sort of facial hair um, if you were walking around an average town. So it sort of argues uh, against it being a completely beardless age. But I think that the overall fashion was for the clean-shaven face. You, you see it referred to in so many different respects that it's quite deeply entrenched it's just that i think individual men as they always have done just sometimes chose to buck the trend so one of the things that you uh, go into interesting detail on in the book is how the uh, the facial hair was actually removed um mm. so can you can you give us a bit of a sense about how that happened uh, at the start of the period and then moving moving through the uh, the 18th century so, of course, the barber was always central to this. And one of the surprises of the book was how far he remained central long after men had started shaving themselves. Because when the book starts in 1650, there are occasional references, for example, in Samuel Pepys's diary, to him trying to shave himself. And he uses various means. One is shave, um, scraping off the skin with a pumice, uh, with a, the facial hair with a pumice stone. Um, he does experiment with a razor. But razors are actually very difficult to get. Um, there aren't many places you could go and buy one from. You might find one in a cutler's shop or, um, you know, you might even be able to buy them from the barber. But the sort of razors you can buy will be quite difficult to maintain. They need constant stropping, honing, sharpening. And to be frank, it's not worth the bother. It's easier to go to a barber. Um, before the mid-18th century, these will be razors made of a type of steel called uh, sheer steel or blister steel, which is not the um, not the best, can't carry the sharpest edge of all. So um, my theory is there will be a lot of guys walking around with quite nasty shaving rashes because this is not, don't think of your five-bladed disposable razor that we get today. This will be something 
depending on the skill of the barber in sharpening it, something that potentially could hurt quite a lot. And there are a lot of satires around about the discomfort of being shaved with a blunted razor. One describes it as being like shaved with an oyster knife. Um, and of course, depending on what sort of barber you go to in the 17th and into the 18th century, they range quite widely in terms of quality. So this may be a penny scraper who um, basically sits you in the chair, whips the facial hair off as quick as you can, pushes you out the door and next, please. Or at the high end, you may have a little bit of ceremony, the hot towels, a little bit of cream on afterwards. And, um, you know, that's sort of more of an experience. But I think overall, before sharper razors start to come in towards the end of the 18th century, it wouldn't have been an entirely comfortable experience. But presumably barbers must have been ubiquitous then across across the land. Would uh, what sort of can you give us a sense of what it was like to go to a barber's? Where did they do their do their work? Yeah, so um, there are barber shops in towns and villages all across Britain, um, and they will range, as I say, from very small basic businesses to high end ones. Sometimes cheek by jowl, you know, within the same street. So consumers had a choice. Because basically, the barber is a very, very important figure for men. And their shops become, um, to give them the, the sort of posh academic term, homosocial spaces. Places where guys can meet, hang out, have a drink, gossip, as well as a haircut and a shave. And um, in fact, one of the surprises I had was how closely shaving was linked as a function of the barber. Um, and some dictionaries actually define barbers as a man who shaves and in fact in one dictionary uh, describes it as a man who shaves another man for money which makes the whole thing sound a little bit sordid <laughs> but uh yeah so the shops you would um in some cases we should even forget the idea of a shop you know with a stripy pole and the, the, the shop window these could be a couple of chairs in the back room of a barber's house and in fact some barbers didn't even have shops uh, they would travel to the customer, the wealthier customer, the barber would come to them to save them the, the hassle of having to go to the shops. So yeah, some of them might just have a couple of chairs, um, maybe a basin, one or two razors, which they use day in, day out. The higher up the uh, sort of prestige, the status of the barber shop, you can have ones with multiple chairs, um, some some inventories show things like Russian leather chairs, you know, quite comfortable things. Um, you'll see basins, cloths, cisterns. Um, you sometimes see musical instruments listed. Uh, in one, I found a birdcage. Uh, you know, so you're getting a sense of a much more um, uh, an experience. Yeah, things around for the customer to do. And of course, barbers often sell things to you as well. Drink. Um, in uh, they'll sometimes sell you food. So just place you go to hang out, like like a sort of pub, I suppose. Uh, even ale, they'll serve you ale, perhaps sometimes within the price of the shave. Okay, well, presumably you don't want the barber to have had too much ale if, uh, if these um, uh, instruments aren't too clever. No, indeed. You don't want a barber with a shaky hand, that much is certain. Anyone who's studied medical history knows that uh, you've got barbers and barber surgeons and this this idea that uh, that surgery was carried out by the same people that uh, that uh, shaved you and cut your hair. Is that true? What's how, What have you learned about that? Yeah, it's absolutely true. And I mean, that points to a, a very important point um, about facial hair, actually. It was that throughout the 17th and much of the 18th, it's regarded in medical 
terms. It's um, removing shaving, uh, removing facial hair has actually been viewed as a sort of medical procedure. It's hiving off one of the body's um, tegments, if you like, like hair and nails, um, and removing a source of excrement. So you're actually doing something. And of course, the barber surgeon carries out any number of other small bodywork tasks. When we think of a surgeon, we often think of the, the signal things like, um, you know, I don't know, amputation and general operations. But a lot of what the barber surgeon and the barber does are small things so like scraping your tongue, lancing your boils, picking your teeth, scraping the earwax out, all those little minor bodywork tasks. So um, you, you asked there about, you know, what, what's the relationship between the barber and the barber surgeon? Well, it's debate a point of debate whether we should actually even draw too much of a distinction between a barber surgeon and a barber. And one of the things I looked at was actually people who were described as, let's, let's put it in quotes, just barbers, because there must have been some who didn't do the medical functions as well. But in actual fact, it's so interchangeable um that it, there's, there's not much distance between them so barbers and barber surgeons are pretty much the same until of course 1745 when they split um and the term barber surgeon starts to disappear they the two groups fall out quite dramatically they don't get on very well the surgeons abandon the barbers and they um they see it as a sort of task that's no longer worthy of them um shaving and and doing all these minor things they go on to form their own company and the the barbers so the old story goes sink into social oblivion but um in fact i don't think they did so before for 1745 uh mm. what was what was the the social status of a of a barber a barber surgeon was it a good job well, um, it depends who you ask. If you were to ask a physician in the 18th century what they thought of barbers, they would, uh, a term like butcher would probably not be too far from what they said because um, they are in the traditional three-part hierarchy, which is itself debatable, but let's, let's run with it for a second. The, think of a pyramid with physicians at the top, barber surgeons um, and apothecaries in the middle, and then at the bottom, a sort of undifferentiated mass of everybody else. Um, yes, apothecaries think they're higher than uh, barber surgeons and so do physicians because the barber gets barber surgeon gets his hands dirty gets gets into the messy stuff with the body the apothecary of course um, is supposed to just prescribe so they have their shops they're supposed to be learned in um, concocting remedies the physician is the one who really diagnoses and according to them is the the top of the tree so the poor barber surgeon i think gets a uh, a bum rap, shall we say. They're the ones who just everybody seems to look down on. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The little office clerk can say, I'm, you know, I might be working in this office. I might be here as a nine to five. I might be completely under the thumb at home. But this beard says, I'm, I'm Uberman. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. 
Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. So um, we've, we've talked a bit about um, the, the sort of the health implication of this. And in your book, you talk about the demedicalization of facial hair over the period. So at what point do people start to think, hold on, this idea of it being the, the excrement of the, of the body, the spermatic excrement or whatever it is? When, when do people think, hang on, that's, that's, that's not right? I think that had gone by the mid 18th century, and in, in fact, the, the, what you what you see as a sort of lingering remnant is the concept of heat. And right up even into the early years of the 19th century, you still see the beard being referred to as a sort of product of inner heat, but not specifically linked to spermatic production. Um, so that, but I think by the mid 18th century, you don't find authors referring to that anymore. And certainly the other interesting thing that happens in terms of um, the demedicalization is actually you stop seeing facial hair being referred to in medical debates too. It sort of just falls out of medicine. It becomes this different thing. And I think as ideas about where facial hair come from change, it starts to be seen more as something that um, grows within the skin or on the skin, not from deep within the body that's the point at which it sort of starts becoming more of a its own thing, this this sort of more, well, hi, still hygiene-related, but not really medically related. Okay, um, let's hop on a bit. When do we enter the age of autopogonotomy? Autopogonotomy. Um, yeah, it, it starts, it has quite, a, I think, a specific start point, and that's the invention of cast steel in the um, 1750s, 1760s. And that's about the point at which you start seeing the first advertisements in newspapers for razors to gentlemen who shave themselves. And, uh, you know, it sounds completely innocuous, but when we think about it, for centuries, the barber has been the sole provider of shaving. And suddenly, here is a new body of um, stuff encouraging guys to shave themselves, not just the advertisements, but the advice literature that's coming out. Um, the art of shaving oneself, um, and telling guys what to do. Because if we think about it, where do people learn to do this if they've never done it? Um, and it's not a process I would want to teach myself with a cutthroat razor, frankly. Um, so yes, it starts that period around about 1760, 1770. That's when the first adverts appear. And I mean, it's slightly a misnomer, I think. It's not that all guys suddenly start to shave themselves and they never go to a barber again. And in fact, even elite guys, quite often, I think, are getting a servant to do it for them. Um, or they, they may interchange with going to the barber as well. They may do it once themselves a week and still visit a barber. But these, these new types of steel razors are becoming quite desirable because they look cool. They look really shiny. They've got fancy handles. So it's the sort of thing you might want to have as a nice little gentlemanly accoutrement. Look at me with my new flashy car steel razor. And so you, you talk about um, in the book uh, the sort of the material culture of this um, of this period, and, that, and you, the, the, the actual razor is one bit. Mirrors is, is another uh, another bit of this story. So you kind of get a whole new accoutrement uh, of, of shaving going on in this period. Yeah, and I'm sticking my neck right on the line here and saying it's actually, I think, um, the first example of a cosmetic product, shaving product, a cosmetic market just for men. Um, I can't think of another example where a group of products um, have been designed and advertised just for men. 
So, for example, at this roughly the same time as the razors start appearing in newspapers, so do shaving pastes, shaving powders, creams, soaps, uh, and all couched in this very interesting language, um, which is that razors very often stress steely hardness, temper, control. So shaving is all about the gentleman showing he's in control, in command of his body. But if you look at the language advertising, the shaving post, uh, shaving uh, lotions and creams and so on, it's all softness and unctuousness and ease, luxury. So it's a completely different narrative. And also, they're set quite often scented. Um, so it's, it is its product in the same way as we see today. You know, this is something that guys can go and buy, slather on a bit of lavender-smelling um, shaving paste, shaving cream, and away they go. So I think it is actually an important stage. It's in terms of male consumption. It's a very specific area uh, which is meant for them. Yeah, it's interesting, um, and I guess it's all born out of the industrial revolution. Then, with the new, with the new steel um, technology, it's, this is this is all all tied up in that, right? Yeah, and I mean it's, it's closely bound with things like enlightened scientific endeavor, and a lot of razor makers really push this in their advertisements and say this razor is tempered on philosophical principles. You know, it's brought to such an exact degree of temper that it's it's perfect. And another sort of part of that um, that psyche is uh, is the great age of classification in the 18th century, isn't it? When when everyone's uh, well, um, uh, European men generally are trying to classify things. Is this is this a story of white European men? Where does where does um, uh, I suppose racism fit in into this story? If uh, if that's an appropriate word to use, I, I think it's an entirely appropriate word. Yeah, I mean the book is the book is about. Um, Britain primarily. But yes, one of the big debates that goes on in the 18th century, and as you say, the great age of classification, is about how does facial hair indicate, for want of a better word, value um, in terms of race. And of course, because Europeans are the ones, as you say, creating this classification, they place themselves at the very top of this evolutionary tree. And so, in a nutshell, Nations that most closely resemble Europeans in either their fa facial appearance um, or even in the manner that they remove facial hair are viewed more favorably. Nations who can't, whose men can't grow beards or um, grow a different type of beard are viewed more negatively. So it's all about creating this hierarchy of which facial hair is a very important part. And... What about uh, gender here? I mean, this we, this is men. We're talking about men. You you you, mm. you outlined the homosocial aspect of the barbershop. Um, what have you looked at, at women and, and facial hair? What's what's the what's the story there? Was it uh, is there is there a story to talk about that? Well, there is, but I mean, one one decision I took early on with the book actually was that I wanted it to be a to to be a study of masculinity in this sense and to find out you know what what's going on with this um the relationship between men and beards and what does it tell us about changing ideals of masculinity because the danger sometimes in talking about women and facial hair is it can push you down the path of the sort of the, the bearded woman and the the whole sort of victorian thing about displays and shows and stuff and I, I really didn't want to go too down far down that road but what is interesting i think is um, what it tells us about the changing expectations of gender. So, for example, through the 17th and into the 
up to about the mid-18th century, it's still conceivable because of the what Thomas Lacour called the one-sex model of the body, that gender occurs along a scale. So there will be some men, for example, who tend more towards the female, as there will be some fem- women who tend more towards the male. And those women, those uh, more, we say, mannish women, might have some facial hair. And of course, it's recognised that older um, women have some facial hair too. I mean, what I where I found some lovely little um, snippets along the way were things like the fashion for whiskers that happened in the early, um, very early part of the 19th century, which spawned imitations by women. And that happened again in the beard movement where they would train love locks down the side of their face and underneath the chin to imitate um, facial hair. So because they, because I, I suppose they want to, they can see how important these fashions are becoming and they want, want a part of it. Um, but there are even other others penciling whiskers on. Apparently, I've never seen a picture of this, but it's referred to in an adver- actually in advertisements for products that say this. You know, these these can create the illusion of whiskers. Well, that's fascinating. Um, okay, let's let's charge on um, because uh, we we need to get to uh, get to the end of the story. Uh, so, uh, mid Victorian period, eighteen fifties, beards are beards are back, aren't they? Back with a uh, with a bang. Um, why? What's happened? So what happens around about the mid-19th century is that I think the background is there are some anxieties really about masculinity and fears that various things are impacting upon men's natural, supposed natural, that's their word, not mine, authority. Um, so one is the Industrial Revolution and the way that that is creating new situations for men that they're not used to. Because if we think up till then, men had never had to work together in large numbers, say in a factory or an office situation. So there's that. There is, of course, the situation with women who are agitating for more power um, and more freedom. And it just adds up to a general sense that British men are being somehow weakened by modern life. So they, there's a sort of search really for something that can stand as an emblem along comes the crimean war and the british soldiers returning from the crimean war with massive beards and they become a sort of um symbol of heroism and the beard by almost from that really takes on this new meaning and suddenly by growing a beard guys can uh locate themselves as like these new martial heroes so like explorers are off to the wilds of africa and coming back with beards mountaineers like albert smith the guy who goes up mont blanc comes down with a massive beard so you know by growing one the little office clerk can say i'm you know i might be working in this office i might be here as a nine to five i might be completely under the thumb at home but this beard says i'm i'm uberman I'm in charge. So that's I'm in charge. so that's fascinating. The Crimean War aspect, uh, sort of changing changing fashion. So uh, the, those soldiers they grew beards just because they hadn't had the opportunity to shave, or was there something going on in the Crimea that uh, uh, that, that made them get bigger beards? Well, I mean, part of it is a climactic thing that you know to keep the face warm. And one of the arguments that was made actually probably about twenty years before the beard movement, before they really start running with these quite wild health ideas, which um, I'll come to in a sec. Um, but yeah, this, the idea is that the beard can be the soldier's best friend, that it keeps him um, warm at night and cool by day um, and, and sort of a protectant, if you like, from the sun. So quite a harsh environment in the Crimea. So, But yes, and of course, you have certain regiments which are um, 
wear their beards as a as a badge of honor, badge of pride, like the Highland Regiment. So back, these guys come back off the ship, and it's like you know, there's a general sense of yeah, we need to look like these guys. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm imagining some of those those pictures actually uh, as as we speak of the uh, of the big bearded uh, gentleman. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and with the bearskin hat as well. You know, think of the massive beard with the bearskin hat coming off the ship. There's actually an image of Queen Victoria meeting these guys coming off the ship. Um, and, you know, the sense of wonderment. <laughs> pretty, pretty imposing figures, one would yeah. imagine. Let's uh, let's go back to the uh, the health benefits you just mentioned, mm. because uh, uh, here's, here's an, another little quote from the book. Uh, the supposed health benefits of moustaches and beards uh, had widened by the, uh, the 1860s uh, to include protection of the voice and throat for the uh, clergy and public speakers and a protective shield for workers in dusty environments, um, cementing in the public mind their important role as a natural filter. So that's mm. interesting. So they're being viewed as, as something that's, that's stopping particles getting into, into the body. Yeah, and that's one of the most common health arguments is that beard is nature's filter. And in fact, they use the term nature's respirator, which is completely nicked from an actual device called the respirator but yes it becomes almost a sort of and another thing um list of health benefits that the beard is supposed to have that it's nature's filter against dust germs it protects the voice the larynx for public speakers it stops people in dusty trades being affected with pulmonary diseases um it even it's uh, i've seen arguments that the beard protects the teeth um my favourite of all, which was I, I think must have been concocted in a pub on a Saturday evening, uh, which is the idea that the beard must have a natural correlation with the eyes, um, which is evidenced by if you tug a beard hard, the eyes water. Therefore, there must be some correspondence between them. So it must protect the eyes too. But yes, this beard becomes, you know, takes on this status as it's it's everything to all men. Why would you not want this thing? It it, it has it's multi-purpose armour. And that's that's really important, actually, isn't it? Because the, uh, the sort of the particulate damage that people suffered when they were working in in factories with with all the uh, the minute particles flying around was was really significant, wasn't it? Well, it was. I mean, you know, there's soot and smuts flying around your average city street just from the coal smoke and everything else. And of course, yes, down mines and in dusty trades. I mean, I just don't find the argument that convincing because surely it just your massive beard just collects all this stuff and then you breathe it in at leisure. I don't see actually what the protective part of it is. But of course, as I was saying, it's um, the supporters of the beards who come up with this stuff. It's very hard, even though they constantly say all medical gentlemen agree or, you know, some esteemed medical gentlemen argue this. You very rarely find which medical gentlemen have supposedly said this. And in fact, I can only link it to a couple. And it seems that... All of these health benefits come from a very, very limited source. And in fact, often no source at all. So you just see things in newspapers. It's almost beyond question now that these health benefits exist. It's widely known. But a lot of them actually have been cut and cut and pasted um, from the claims for an actual device called the respirator, which was invented in the 1830s, which had nothing to do with dust and germs and was just about warming the incoming breath to protect against changes of temperature. So all that beard supporters, it seems to me, did was got this stuff and thought, oh, that'll do, um, and, and appropriated it wholesale, shall we say. <laughs> It's uh, it's interesting to think about this in the context of where we are now with the uh, with the pandemic because there was there was a, a big conversation uh, last year I recall about whether 
um, your the, uh, the the facial mask were negatively impacted by by having beer. So the conversation is kind of still with us, isn't it? In a way. Well, it is. I mean, that whole debate about an artificial barrier between us and the outside air. I mean, if if ever there was a it was a, an echo of history here with the, you know the whole face masks and COVID thing. It's um, you know, we still have this inherent fear about breathing bad stuff in. Um, the, so the beard is a, a, a sort of extension of the cordon sanitaire, which the Victorians are very keen on. And we still are today. You know, it's an artificial barrier between us and the bad stuff. But of course, the beard actually gets in the way. Um, I mean, this one I'm wearing now is probably, I don't know, inch and a half down off my chin, but it already pokes out of the bottom of your average COVID face mask. So I'm having to tuck it up and <laughs> tuck it up under the beard. And of course, it, one of the reasons why it's not... Um, really um favored in the armed forces because it gets in the way of a seal if um if a, if a respirator has to be put on respiratory mask has to be put on it gets in the way of the seal so yeah it's um the beard is actually unfavored now for its health benefits um right so so charging on we, we better uh get to get to get to the end if we, if we can so um uh the victorian period is 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 bearded and you've got mm. these big beard defenders and beard supporters um does 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 beard wearing drop out of fashion at the end of the victorian period what's what's the what's the ongoing story yeah i mean i think by the 1870s the 1880s so after about 30 years say i think the same happens as often happens that younger guys in particular are starting to get bored of it um and you know it's it's becoming it's something that their dads wore and of course, they want to find their own way. So they start turning to moustaches again and eventually to the clean-shaven face. But it's just worth mentioning that um, this issue of class comes into it again. Because when we think of the archetypal bearded Victorian, we think of the, the full cathedral beard, as it's called, mm. the magisterial thing. The, you the see Charles in, Darwin sort. The Charles Darwin, exactly. Yeah. And I, again, wanted to find out what are the lower class guys wearing. So I happily, I had photographs of them. Um, so I went through prisoner photographs which were taken increasingly from the 1860s just as guys were arrested so it should give you a you know fairly decent window and i had a surprise which was that the the, the charles darwin beard accounted for probably about 30 percent of beard wearers and the most common style across three or four different areas of the country at the same time that i found amongst lower class guys was a style called the chin strap beard which is um, a frankly awful looking thing, which is a it comes down from the sideburns under the chin as a th either a thin strap with no with the cheeks shaved and no moustache. So you can picture this thing. It could sometimes become a chin curtain where it was left to grow longer. So you get this sort of weird dangly thing surrounding the face. Um, and actually, 30 or 40% of men overall in the sample I looked at had no facial hair. So even seeing the Victorian period as, you know, this, the beard movement and the beardless age might not actually be as accurate because if these things are any way suggestive of lower class guys across the country, then a large percentage of men had no beards. A large percentage of men with facial hair had this chin strap or a variation, mutton chop sideburns, something like that. Um, and so, you know, it, it depends a great deal on age, occupation, status. But across the board, it seems, by the end of the 19th century, you have the invention of the safety razor. You have much more branding in shaving goods. Pears soap, for example, very famous, makes cuticura shaving sticks. And suddenly the clean shaven face becomes actually an emblem of modernity 
where it's, where it's before been an emblem of manliness, the clean-shaven face becomes, you know, the, the sign of modernity as we go into the 20th century. Right. To wrap up, uh, I'm just going to uh, drop in another quote uh, from, from your book. Uh, the research project on which this book is based was titled Do Beards Matter? A deliberately provocative question which sought to draw attention to the issue of whether something as quotidian as a beard could potentially shed light on the histories of gender, masculinity, the body, medicine, health and practice, and even broader social, cultural and economic conditions. So what's the answer? Yes. <laughs> For, it's a firm yes from me. Yes, I mean, I think it is... The reason I find it fascinating is because on one level, the beard is such a prosaic thing. You know, we, we think of it just in terms of fashion, something quirky. But when you actually dig deeper and you look at the things that it's been bound up with, so as, as you've mentioned there, you know, um, gender, sexuality, but race, consumption ideals of masculinity and how any in any period men want to be viewed and of course practitioners it doesn't just involve individual men it involves a range of other people as well sellers of sellers and makers of razors and so on so i think yeah it actually gives us a window into so many different areas of um health medicine masculinity and so on so yeah i think i think it's a resounding yes that was dr alan withy his book Concerning Beards, Facial Hair, Health and Practice in England, 1650-1900, is published now by Bloomsbury Academic. The book is actually an open access title, so you can read it for free if you go to the Bloomsbury Collections website. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. 